Okay, so I think we are going to go ahead and uh, I'm going to share my screen and we're going to get to it. So for the next uh, hour or so, uh, hold on, let me set up my PowerPoint here. We will be discussing the age-old question of who counts as a Jew. So let me share that and I will start the slideshow. All right, and thumbs up. If you are watching online, can you see the PowerPoint, who is a Jew? Yes. All right, thank you, Sherry. You are my, my Greek chorus, so, uh, the right phrase. So thank you very much um, for the encouragement. Always good to know. Uh, who is a Jew? And I laughed uh, when I was writing this because it looks like I answered my own question with myself. Uh, that was not my intention, but I also didn't change it when I saw that little joke. So um, this is what we're talking about. And before we get to it, uh, I want to share just a little note on biases and specifically my bias as the instructor here or what some of my potential biases might be. So a little bit about me. Um, and I'll explain why I'm sharing this in a moment. Uh, so I am the product of a drum roll, a Jewish father and a Catholic mother, which means according to halakha, Jewish law, and in the opinion of a number of Jews, or I would dare say many Jews in the world, that yours truly would be a non-Jewish rabbi. Why am I sharing this with you? Uh, Number one, this is why this topic interests me. I do have a strong personal connection to it. And number two, as we talk about the issue of who is a Jew, this is a touchy subject uh, that a lot of us or a lot of folks can feel uh, self-conscious or insecure about their own Jewish identity. I don't feel I'm truly Jewish or I'm a good Jew or enough of a Jew. And looking at these texts can also not feel great. Some of the things we will be exploring. So. If you feel that way after going through this, I just want you to know, number one, you're not alone. And number two, these are feelings that I have wrestled with at different parts of my life too. Uh, and I'm happy to talk more offline if anyone wants to have those conversations. Uh, but I wanted to be upfront about where I'm at in all of this uh, and just where I come from. I think it's worth uh, sharing with you all. So now that that's out of the way, here is a simplified timeline of Jewish identity, simplified in quotes. So from the year 500-ish, uh, before the Common Era, uh, so on the other side of zero, to 1983, you would be Jewish if you are born to a Jewish mother or you convert to Judaism. Simplified timeline again. So how, how do you know if someone is Jewish or not from this time period? you are Jewish if your mother was Jewish or you converted to Judaism. And then going along with our simplified timeline, 1983 of the common era, uh, to be clear, the reform movement redefines Jewish identity, quote unquote. Again, this is all simplified here. And therefore, uh, after 1983, according to the reform movement, you are Jewish if you are born to one Jewish parent, so not just, not only a Jewish mother, but also a Jewish father. And there's an additional part to this. And you were raised Jewish. So it is no longer a matter simply of ancestry according to the reform opinion or the reform policy adopted in 83, but also upbringing. So for example, 
Uh, and we'll talk about this more in our second session when we uh, talk about modern day implications. But you may have heard these stories of someone who may take a DNA test and find out that they have you know, Ashkenazi or Sephardic ancestry and realize despite having grown up Methodist or whatever, that they are Jewish. And according to some Jewish opinions and frankly, non-reformed Jewish opinions, if that lineage can be traced matrilineally through mothers, then yes, that Methodist is in fact Jewish. Um, and in that case, the reform movement would say, no, that person is not Jewish. That person could become Jewish, but that person would not be considered Jewish according to the reform movement's policy in 1983, but that person would be Jewish according to other denominations. So that's an important part that gets lost here that the reform movement actually limited um, in some way very greatly expanded who counts as a Jew, but also limited. So there are people who would otherwise be counted Jewish, but are not according to this definition. And of course, the second part to it, you convert. So that remains the same. You're Jewish according to the reform movement. If you are born to a Jewish parent or raised Jewish or you convert to Judaism. Um, so that's the simplified timeline, right? But nothing is ever so simple. So question we should ask is what happened before 500-ish BCE? Judaism did not begin in the year 500 uh, before the common era. It's long older than that. So what, how was Judaism defined? Who counted as a Jew prior to that? So again, our definition after 500 BCE is you're Jewish if you were born to a Jewish mother or you converted, but prior to 500, neither of these are the case. There is no evidence for either of these to be true prior to the year 500. So let's get into that. And here's a quote from Shai Cohen. Um, I'll be quoting from him a number of times tonight. He's an expert on the subject. Uh, the pre-exilic portions of the Tanakh are not familiar with the matrilineal principle. Don't worry, I will be um, translating this. So pre-exilic means the period before the exile in 586 BCE, the Babylonian exile. So prior to that event, uh, the Tanakh, meaning the Hebrew Bible, has no record of the matrilineal principle, meaning matrilineal descent, meaning the whole concept that you're Jewish if your mother specifically is Jewish. No evidence of that is Shai Kohn's statement. Uh, and he is far from alone in saying this. He is just the person I chose to, to quote on this. Uh, and then this comes from Louis Epstein. Epstein, I'm not totally sure how he pronounces it. Uh, in the patronymic family system, which was general throughout the biblical period, the child of an intermarriage followed his father and was equal to his brothers in all respects. We infer this not only from absence of any instructions to the contrary, but also from a number of family records in the Bible where children by heathen mothers, I apologize for that language, but let's translate that as non-Jewish mothers, rank as fully legitimate members of their, family, of their father's families without any discrimination whatever. Oh, and hello, Wendy, thank you for joining us. Hope you uh, and yours are doing okay. Um, so uh, again, to sum up this quote, says something similar to uh, Shai Cohen's quote from before, but just in a little more in depth, that we see that regardless of the status of if the mother was Jewish or not in the pre-exilic period, that children were treated the same. There was no record in the Torah that you should discriminate or 
you know, that someone is more entitled to a birthright than another or a share of the property or anything like that. There's no, the Torah does not seem to have any kind of issue uh, with um, someone born to a mother who is not Jewish, um, does not imagine them to be any different whatsoever. And also furthermore, that mother uh, who is born not Jewish seems to be a welcomed member of the family uh, and accepted uh, among the people. Um, so that's the quote from Louis Epstein. So some examples of this, don't worry, we will not read all of this, but uh, it's just fun to put it all out there to make the point from Genesis chapter five. This is toward the very beginning of the Torah, obviously, uh, toward the end of the Genesis story, when it talks about uh, Adam's lineage, which is what gets us to Noah. Uh, let's see, and I didn't quote all of it, but eventually we would get down to Noah if we kept going. Uh, but if you look at this, this is Adam's line. I'm just gonna read a little bit of this, I promise. Uh, when Adam lived to 130 years old, he begot a son in his likeness after his image, who he named Seth. After the birth of Seth, Adam lived longer and begot sons and daughters. Uh, then Adam died when Seth had lived 105 years. He begot Enosh. After the birth of Enosh, Seth lived um, and had more sons and daughters. All the days of Seth came to 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he begot Kenan, Kenan and so on and so on. Um, what do we have to point out here, or what's, I think, fairly clear? It's following the dads, and you can read on, on and on if you want, and you'll just have to take my word that no moms are mentioned in this, that the genealogy presented in the beginning of Genesis is whose dad was who, and establishing the connection from Adam on down to Noah is going to go from the dads, the fathers, um, which, again, is... It's not great that the women have been completely erased from this and are essentially irrelevant. Um, and we could talk about that, uh, of how uh, problematic that is. But for our purposes, if we're gonna say, how did the Torah understand who counted as Jewish, uh, then we can see it's going through the patrilineal side, at least in this example. Jewish is a problematic term. We don't have Jews at this point. Uh, we don't have even have Israelites. I'm not sure exactly what to call these folks, uh, pre-Israelites maybe, uh, but uh, whatever it is, the people that are connected to God in this way uh, are connected through their fathers. So that's one example. And then just some others from other parts of, of the Torah in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, exogamy is uh, marrying outside of one's group, uh, just fancy word for saying intermarriage, I suppose. So some famous examples, Judah, uh, one of the uh, 12 tribes and the one that led to Jews. Um, but Judah married a Canaanite woman. Joseph married an Egyptian. Moses married a Midianite. David married a Philistine. And Solomon married several foreign wives. Uh, you can see the asterisk if you want uh, an approximation of how many, uh, rather famously. Uh, but all of these examples here are uh, men who married non Israelite or non-Jewish, depending on the time period women, and their children, according to the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, are accepted uh, and are, are seen as Jewish or seen as legitimate. They're not uh, ostracized or are frowned upon. Uh, so we have a lot of examples uh, of marrying uh, outside of the Jewish faith and of the children being accepted, and so not following the mother. Uh, before we continue, are there any thoughts or questions? I've just talked for quite a bit or thrown a lot at you all. Not Jews yet. 
Okay, I don't hear any. Feel free to use the chat as well if you would like uh, for those that are on the Zoom. Oh, Susan, go ahead. We're not Jews yet. Susan, I'm sorry. I, I'm not sure why, but I, I'm not, I can see you talking, but I can't hear you. That Susan, try. All right, there seems to be some issue with our setup here. I am so sorry, Susan, um, that I can't actually hear, apparently, when, when folks are talking. I don't know why, Sherry, I was able to hear you fine earlier, um, but Susan, I can't hear you. Sherry, I hate to pick on you, but would you say something to see if I can hear you? Yes, hello, hello. <laughs> I can hear me, Tess so, Rabbi. Can you hear uh, me? Lindy? Trying to think how to troubleshoot this. Hold on one moment. Oh, no, I, I, can hear, uh, I can hear Susan. Yeah, this I is can. Wendy. Can you hear Wendy? Yeah. I can hear you, Wendy. Yeah, yeah we, can, we can hear each other. We can actually hear Susan. I think it's just that you All right, been Sherry, able would you speak one more time, please? I'm sorry. Okay, I am terribly sorry for the technical issues. I'm not able to hear anything at this point. Um, so if you do wanna share or comment or ask a question, I, I encourage you to use the chat function in Zoom uh, and I will be checking those as, as we go along. Uh, and my apologies, um, this may end up being a slightly shorter uh, presentation as I had planned in a lot of discussion time. So, um, okay. Well, we'll see how this goes. Um, so let's continue here with um, talking about how some things in Judaism might have looked a little different uh, in the biblical period. So right here we have. Yes. Yeah, I turned it so I'd actually muted it to see if that was the problem, but yes. We're still on the same quandary, but thank you. Uh, so what was biblical conversion like, or how did you become Jewish in the biblical period? Um, according to Rabbi Dr. David Ellenson, uh, one of my teachers at Hebrew Union College, conversion in the Bible seems to be accomplished simply through marriage. And that's about as basic as, 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 as what it sounds like right here, that if you wanted to become Jewish, well, you married a Jew, and the simple act of marrying them also makes you Jewish or Israelite, depending on the time period. Uh, but that's it. So there is no distinct ceremony or ritual uh, that one undertakes to become Jewish. It's kind of a uh, fringe benefit or a side a corollary of going through a marriage to a Jewish person. Um, and that is how one becomes Jewish. So then the next question, what was biblical marriage? If marriage is what makes you Jewish, well, what is a marriage exactly in the biblical sense? Shai Cohen again, marriage was the non-sacramental private acquisition of a woman by a man and the state, the government, had a little legal standing in the matter. Driest definition of marriage one could probably ever come up with, um, but probably accurate. So when we hear are these examples of so-and-so took so-and-so as a wife, that verb took, um, you know, that's kind of what we're talking about. Um, you know, that's kind of what we're talking about here. Like you're my wife now. 
Um, maybe there's some negotiations with the family or whatnot over dowry, um, but you know, a handshake or whatever is, is done. And then you are a wife uh, or it is now a marriage. Um, and there's also, you know, it wouldn't have looked ceremonial such as marriages today. There was no chuppah, there was no ritual. It was, I don't even know what to describe it as. I don't know, like, like acquiring property essentially. And I hate to frame it in that light. It's not pretty, it's not pleasant, uh, but it's, it's the reality of, of what this would have looked like. So to summarize what was happening, a Hebrew or an Israelite man uh, takes a wife who may or may not be Jewish or Israelite, um, and then she essentially becomes whatever he is. And this would have been the case. So if he was an Israelite, uh, if he was not, if he was some other um, uh, religious ethnic group, then she would have turned into that. Uh, but because we're talking about uh, Jewish marriage or Jewish culture, um, we're, we're focusing on what happens if, if the person is Jewish. Uh, and the woman then kind of absorbs or is absorbed into that society uh, and, and becomes Jewish. Uh, so let me see, I see a chat here. What if you wanted to convert, but not by marriage uh, is Nancy's question. Uh, Nancy, it's a simple answer, you didn't. Um, or I don't know if that's simple or not, but um, I don't think that Judaism was not seen you know, it's a rough analogy, in the, but try to think of it as, you know, if you were Jewish, it wasn't a religion, it was an ethnic tribal identity. It would be like trying, being interested in converting to a different ethnic group today. Um, you can have an affinity for a different ethnic group, but you can't really become a different ethnic group. Um, if that makes sense. It's not the best analogy, but it's the best one I can think of here. Uh, so the Judaism was more than a religion. Uh, it wasn't just something, a set of beliefs that one adopted. It was a, uh, almost seen as, as, as racial. I hate to go there, but as something that was just imprinted within you. Um, all right. Well, Nancy, I'm flattered that whatever I just said made some sense. Okay. Thank you. Um, uh, but that, yeah, that's the long and short of it that I, I don't think, granted I wasn't there then, and, uh, but that people would have even thought that way of like, oh, I want to become this or I want to change, transform. It just, it, it wasn't uh, something that people could conceptualize of. Um, so in summary here of what we've discussed so far, the Torah understands someone to be an Israelite if they are taken as a wife by an Israelite man, or they are the offspring of such a union. Uh, and I'm, I'm hesitant to call it a marriage, but uh, of such a, a, a union. Um, so, and in either case, uh, then you are considered fully Israelite. Uh, there's no qualifiers, there's no, there's no concern. Um, and again, these examples like the ones I showed uh, of famous um, Israelites, uh, like Judah or Moses, like there was no, there's no commentary in the Torah that they did the wrong thing and there's no um, punishment for their children or their the children are not seen as any less or any less legitimate uh, as a result. So that's kind of the Torah's view that you're Jewish basically uh, based on who your dad was, not who your mom was or your Israelite. Which leads to the question or two questions. 
So where did the matrilineal, where did matrilineal descent come from? And how do people defend it? The last one's a little, I, I should have worded it a little softer maybe, but so how did we get from where the Torah is to this idea where Judaism actually goes through the opposite parent? Um, and how do people defend it? Meaning what I should say is like, how do people that accept matrilineal descent, where do they, they hang their hook on, so to speak, their theological hook? And that's a different question because as with most things in Judaism, you know, the goal is to be able to point to something in the Torah to be able to say, or at least the Hebrew Bible, and say, this is where it comes from. See, it's right here. Um, and so given that you can't really find anything uh, in the Torah that, that would, would support this, and in fact, again, you see mostly the opposite. Um, so how, how do you even, how does someone who wants to stand by this say, well, this is why? Um, this is where, this is why we follow this. Uh, so two different questions. How did it even show up? Uh, and then how do you rationalize it? And the answer some of you may be familiar with, the book of Ezra. Uh, there are two passages here taken a little bit apart, uh, but here they are. Then Shekaniah, son of Yehiel of the family of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, we have trespassed against our God by bringing into our homes foreign women from the peoples of the land. But there is still hope for Israel despite this. Now then, let us make a covenant with our God to expel all these women and those who have been born to them. So there you go. This is the first evidence that we see from the book of Ezra here. And this is post-exilic. So I mentioned 586 BCE was the exile to Babylonia. And then um, a few decades later, Jews were able to come back thanks to Cyrus, uh, and this is where Ezra shows up and trying to decide now to recontinue uh, Jewish life in the land of Israel, what is to happen? So that's setting the scene here. Uh, so we have this. So I just read you the first half, and I'm just skipping a few verses where some other drama happens, but just for our purposes, um, you know, look it up on your own if you'd like, but I don't think it, it really detracts from what we're going for here. So then after hearing this, Ezra the priest got up and said to them, meaning the Israelites, you have trespassed by bringing home foreign women, thus aggravating the guilt of Israel. So now make confession to Adonai, God of your fathers, and do God's will, and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign women. Okay, so this is traditionally seen as the basis right here uh, for matrilineal descent, or why it would be that, you know, if you are Jewish, it's because your mother was Jewish. And if your mother wasn't Jewish, then you are not Jewish. That's the negative version of it, which is what we see here. Uh, so if your mother was foreign uh, relative to the Israelite community, then, well, so are you. Um, and people point to this as the evidence. Uh, it's not the Torah, but it's the Hebrew Bible. So it's, you know, it's something. Um, it's certainly uh, more authoritative than if it weren't here. But there are some issues with this. Uh, and, you know, I'm sorry again that I can't hear uh, from any of, of you all who may have seen it or may notice it, uh, but there's kind of a glaring discrepancy here uh, between the two sections. Um, that the first, it's Shekhaniah, son of Yehiel, which if you've never heard of him, uh, essentially neither has anyone else. He's not a particularly 
prominent figure of any kind in the Hebrew Bible. He's just a guy. Uh, I'm not sure he shows up anywhere else besides here. Could be wrong on that, but at least not that I know of. Um, but he is the one who says, uh, we've done something wrong through foreign women, uh, and we're going to make a covenant with God to kick out these women and their children. So he says that. He's the one who says their children aren't, aren't, shouldn't be kept among us. They're foreigners too, essentially. But then Ezra, when he goes up to all of Israel to kind of repeat this, what does he say? Similar but different. Uh, what he says is uh, you'll kick out the foreign women, and he leaves off the part about their children. Um, so a bit of a mystery here, but it would be fair to say that if Ezra agreed with Shekaniah, son of Yehiel, um, he probably would have repeated all of it. But the fact that he cut the request or the demand of his in half, um, I don't know, maybe implies that Ezra wasn't cool with that part of it uh, and didn't see an issue with the children, um, but went along with the foreign wives. Maybe. Um, so that is maybe the most glaring issue that we have for those that want to say, well, this is the source, the legitimate source of why Judaism, um, why we track Judaism through mothers and not fathers. Uh, so the causes from, for concern, I just talked about the first one. Uh, and then, uh, and these come from Shai Cohen, uh, paraphrased uh, from his writings. Uh, and he notes that this section of Ezra is the only mention of this practice during the Second Temple period. If it were a widely held custom, uh, or if this was like widely understood, we would expect to see this come up more in more places in the Hebrew Bible uh, or in any kind of writings from the period. And frankly, we don't. Um, this, this and only this is where we find it. So, um, you know, I guess it's... Um, um, uh, what's the evidence that is not <laughs> uh, circumstantial evidence, I suppose. Uh, but it's curious that we don't see this mentioned anywhere else. Uh, so two concerns there. And that leads us to the question, where did matrilineal descent come from? If you are willing to say it does, we don't buy that it came from here, then where did it come from? And so here, uh, what we have is the first real earliest known authoritative statement supporting matrilineal descent. Matrilineal descent, the, the idea that we track Jewish lineage and who is a Jew based on the status of the mother. Uh, and this is in a section, Kiddushin, um, which talks about all sorts of things related to marriage. Um, so from third chapter, um, now read here, and if you're wondering why it's all funky with some words in bold, uh, from this translation, the bold words are essentially the actual words that are, are in the Mishnah, and then the non-bolded words are added in to kind of um, add some kind of context to make sense of it. So, you know, if you want to play a fun game, try to read just the bold words and see if you can understand what it's trying to say. Uh, and then maybe we can appreciate the job of translators who fill in the rest to try to uh, stitch it all together. But here, I'll, I'll read this for us. And in any case where a woman cannot join in betrothal with a husband or with others, the offspring is like her. He is not, he, the offspring is not considered his father's son at all, but has the same status as his mother. 
And in which case is this applicable? So we're, give us an example. When would this happen? And the mission answers itself. This is the offspring of a Canaanite maidservant or a Gentile woman, as her child is a slave or a Gentile like her. So I, it's pretty clear what it's saying here, that if it's a non-Jewish woman uh, who's entered into a marriage uh, or cannot enter into a legitimate marriage, even it seems to be saying, uh, but there's a child and nonetheless, then the child uh, is considered to have the status of the mother. Uh, so also be a Gentile and not be um, uh, uh, follow the line of the father, unlike what we saw in the Hebrew Bible uh, or in the Torah. Okay, and this is the Mishnah Kiddushin. Uh, and if you're curious, Mishnah, uh, also known as the Oral Torah, uh, if you're unfamiliar, uh, traditionally believed to come down from Sinai, that Moses received both the uh, written Torah and the oral Torah. The oral Torah was passed down, uh, just essentially memorized and, and passed down through uh, sages. Uh, historically, uh, it's estimated that it was written down around the year 200 of the Common Era. So 200 after the year zero, about 1800 years ago uh, is when it was collected, written down. How old, how long was it going around before that? Great mystery, we don't have an answer to that. Um, it, I can't imagine it was all just invented uh, the same time it was written down. So I'm sure it existed prior to that or various parts of it did in different forms. Uh, but around 200 is when it's, it's redacted uh, is the term. So here is the matrilineal mystery. There is no evidence of matrilineal descent during the second temple period or before it, obviously. But by the time the Mishnah was redacted in the year 200, the practice was common enough to be recorded in the Mishnah without citations or debate. By which I mean that the Mishnah just says, like, this is, this is how it is, and there is no uh, dissenting opinion recorded, and there's no effort to say, and this is why, which is kind of surprising. Uh, but what that means is that it was just so obvious to them that they didn't feel the need to have to explain it or cite a source. It would be like us saying something as uncontroversial as traffic lights are green. I don't need to prove anything. I don't need to whip out you know, a transportation code to prove that to you because we all just know it's obvious. Uh, so same thing here, the Mishnah can just say it and it doesn't even need to say anything about it because everyone agrees and everyone, it's just common knowledge. So that leads, that's the mystery here. How did we get from something that didn't, have, there's no record of it existing, to all of a sudden being the law of the land, so to speak, um, you know, a relatively short time later and no explanation of how we got from there to here. Uh, this is the mystery and there's no answer. There are no perfect answer, uh, but I will share some theories. Uh, there are many theories uh, and I can refer you to Shai Cohen's work where he uh, shares, I don't know, at least a half dozen of them and uh, dismisses essentially all of them. Uh, but here are just a couple. So uh, that he either he came up with himself or, you know, he's citing others uh, or some ones that have been batted around throughout the decades. Later generations based law on Ezra text, but they did not admit as much since non-Torah sources are less authoritative. So, you know, Ezra comes around um, and this thing happens but uh, that's recorded in the book of Ezra, but like no one actually follows it. But later generations decide to adopt this practice. 
Um, but they don't want to admit they got it from Ezra because again, Ezra is not Torah, it's Hebrew Bible, but it's not Torah. So it's not the strongest source to be citing, to be basing this off of. So that's why none of the rabbis ever explain this is why we do it, because they don't want to admit it came from a less authoritative source. So they just don't say where they came up with it from. I mean, uh, these are theories, right? Uh, take them for what they are. Like, There's no way to know. Uh, so that's one option, I guess. Um, another is that matrilineal descent roughly follows Roman law of the time, which is true. Uh, the, the Roman legal code uh, tracked lineage through mothers in, in many cases. Um, some caveats here, the Roman code, when it came to the sort of thing is way, way more complicated than the Jewish version, which is fine, but also I'm excusing myself. I can't explain it all that well, uh, but um, roughly speaking, it was more matrilineally based. But the, um, the, the counter argument to this one is well, that may be true, but Jews hated the Romans. So why on earth, Romans, so why on earth would Jewish law be interested in mimicking anything that Roman law was mimicking? Um, you know, why wouldn't we think that Judaism would do the opposite of what the Romans were doing? You can read all kinds of things of Jewish sources saying how horrible Rome was and how backwards they were and evil. Um, so. I don't know, maybe they're still neighbors, whether they like each other or not, they're going to be influenced from each other, but you know, it doesn't necessarily follow just because Rome did something that uh, Judaism is going to say, yeah, we want to be like that. Um, and then this final one, as weird as it is for those that might have read ahead, um, this is the one that Shai Cohen endorses as most likely in his opinion. Uh, so let me unpack it here. So uh, it says it's based on how rabbis understood mules, um, to unpack that. Oh, they understood uh, mixtures. There's this whole thing, if you've studied, come to Torah study, you're familiar with uh, concepts like shotness, uh, of forbidden mixtures of different kinds of animals and different kinds of, of clothing or fabrics and seeds and all of this that uh, the Torah and therefore the rabbis are very concerned about you know, keeping things separated and not creating these, these kinds of mixtures. So uh, you're not supposed to have mules. But it uh, turns out people had mules anyway. As a reminder, a mule is a horse and a donkey put together. Uh, it will make you a mule. Uh, and so based on the Torah's prohibition about mixing things, uh, don't mix a horse and a donkey, basically. But the rabbis realize, well, people are, gonna, people are doing it anyway. We see mules everywhere. Um, so they have to figure out what to do with a mule or how to categorize it. Uh, and this is what the rabbis come up with. Uh, they say that a mule is considered to be the same species as its mother. So you know, a mule is a mule, right? I think, I'm not an expert. But if the mom was the horse, then it's a horse mule, versus if the donkey was the mother, then it would be a donkey mule. Um, again, a mule, I don't, maybe there's a difference of which parent is which of how the mule turns out, I don't know. Uh, but I'm gonna imagine that it's the same, that a mule is a mule is a mule. However, um, the rabbinic law decided that we're gonna categorize it as whatever the mother was. So this was a common understanding um, and was like uncontroversial in rabbinic thinking. Uh, and so Shai's argument, and again, he doesn't say he's certain of this, but he says it's the most plausible that he has seen, uh, is that 
you know, when the rabbis are trying to figure out how to make sense and categorize, in this case, people or children, they're going to go to the analogies of what they're used to and the systems that they're familiar with. And, you know, it's a little unpleasant to compare people to animals. And I'm sorry, I, I don't think that's what this means. They're not saying that these children of non-Jewish mothers are animals or comparing them to donkeys or anything. Um, they're saying this is a familiar way of, of uh, taxonomy or of categorizing um, uh, uh, someone or something of an unclear lineage that doesn't fit into your neat little box. You see what the mother was and you do that one. So that's his argument or his suggestion for what he thinks is the most plausible. I'll leave that up to you all. Um, and there are, uh, you may have heard some other ones, you know, it's, people say this kind of with a wink of, well, matrilineal descent because you never can know who the father was. You always know the mother. Um, so that's a common theory, but uh, doesn't necessarily hold because, well, in a lot of other cases, it does follow the father. When it comes to the priesthood, for example, um, patrilineal descent is seen as totally legitimate. So why would it be that just in this one case, it's matrilineal, but in all these other cases, uh, the rabbis were fine with patrilineal, despite uh, admittedly, there is not there is not 100% certainty uh, of who a father can be, especially before uh, paternity tests. Uh, but it was good enough for the rabbis uh, to say, well, we're going to believe what people tell us. So, um, this was the status quo for 2,000 years, give or take, uh, from uh, the time that the Mishnah uh, appears. Uh, to 1983, approximately. Um, and so I guess 1800 years or so. Um, that you're Jewish if your mother's Jewish and you're not Jewish if your mother is not Jewish, regardless of your father. So why, why did this go on for 2000 years uh, without being challenged? Uh, and you know, the answer is that intermarriage was not it was not a practical concern or issue, uh, namely because it didn't really happen all that much. Uh, uh, and you know, I, I, I don't wanna get too controversial here. I'm not saying intermarriage is good or bad. Well, I am saying, I think it's a good thing. I'm the product of one, as I said, uh, but, um, but it's not because you know, Jews felt that they should only marry other Jews. It's, not, it's, it's nothing like that. Um, or previous generations were more committed to Judaism. No, it's because you know, there basically just weren't opportunities or options for the most part. Uh, it didn't matter what Jews thought or didn't think. They, they, they didn't really have many choices here. So why not? Uh, I mean, part of this is Jewish history that we're pretty familiar with. Um, that we are Jewish communities were isolated from their neighbors uh, in terms of where they physically lived in Jewish ghettos, essentially, or shtetls or some equivalent. Um, so they didn't really come into contact with non-Jews much. They often spoke a different language than their neighbors, obviously had totally different customs. Uh, they dressed differently, they ate differently. We could go on and on. Uh, that there just wasn't much socialization uh, between different groups. So you know, how would a Jewish person even get to a point where they're marrying a, a non-Jewish person? Um, not that it didn't happen, but this was not happening often or, or through most uh, places and through most time periods. Uh, and when intermarriages did happen, which of course they did, uh, the couple would likely be ostracized from both communities. 
and the religious status of the children uh, would be irrelevant. Because uh, if you know, you're not accepted here, you're not accepted there, well, what does it matter what your children are, are seen as? Because you, your family is not welcome in this community regardless. So, um, you know, not saying it's pretty, it's not, but it wouldn't have been an issue in terms of, well, how do we, how do we categorize or what should we do for these children? Because you didn't see them because they were kicked out of, of your town. Um, and I think about it like, um, for example, in Israel today, uh, there is no still maybe changing as we've been saying for a while, uh, but there's no equivalent of civil marriage uh, that there's only religious marriage. So in Israel, if you're going to be married, you're going to be married in Israel by either a rabbi, an imam, uh, or a priest or a minister. Um, or a religious figure in some other religious community. Uh, but what that means is, uh, and on the Jewish side, uh, it means it's an Orthodox rabbi, which is the uh, stream of Judaism recognized by the state of Israel. But what I'm getting at when I'm bringing it up is, you know, maybe there's one, I haven't heard of it, but I don't think there's any minister or any religious figure who would agree to a intermarriage. Um, certainly not on the Orthodox side, I, I can say that with some certainty. Uh, but you know, I don't think on other religious sides too. So if you did want in Israel today, if you wanted to form an intermarriage, um, you can't do it without leaving the country. You can go to Crete or anywhere, you can go anywhere else in the world and do it. And your marriage would then be legally recognized in Israel, um, but you couldn't do it in Israel because there's no equivalent of a civil marriage. Uh, it's only a religious ceremony. So why bring that up? I mean, imagine that's, there weren't civil marriages from, there was no concept of it through most of, of human history. It was all a religious affair. And so before you could hop on a plane to go to Crete, if you wanted to you know, get around it, you couldn't even get married. Who's gonna marry? No rabbi is gonna do that. Uh, and no priest is going to do that. So you know, an intermarriage in, the, in like the strict sense just didn't happen. And that didn't mean people didn't fall in love and run off together, uh, but you know, it, it, I guess, I don't know, it's, it's um, a civil union. <laughs> I don't know what to call it. Uh, none of these terms really work because these, these concepts didn't exist at the time. Uh, but it is not a sanctified marriage in a religious sense or a ritualized sense, uh, just because there's no one that would have uh, been there to officiate it. Um, so that is why for 2000 years, give or take, um, you know, this wasn't really challenged and it wasn't really much of an issue because there just wasn't, an opportunity for, there weren't hordes of people that fell into this category of having a, a lineage of a, a Jewish father, but a non-Jewish mother. There were some, but they were essentially ostracized. So you know, that's not fair, it's not just, but it wasn't enough to like rock the status quo and force the community to do anything. Um, and, and that's why the precedent held for so long, because there was no reason to challenge it. Uh, but that of course does change and that takes us to what we'll talk about in two weeks uh, next time, what the reform movement changed in 1983, why they changed it, and the consequences of doing so. And, you know, um, we can't blame or celebrate the reform movement entirely for this. Uh, we'll talk in depth about what they did, but this is a result of recognizing that the world had changed and that there were now people many, many, many people who fit into this category uh, where there hadn't been before. And there is some history there 
uh, that we'll gloss over a bit, but when it comes to emancipation of Jewish communities now being welcomed uh, or stepping outside of the ghetto uh, and the shtetl and being part of the larger society in Europe and in America. And that is where you get the opportunity uh, where you know, an intermarriage is even possible as something that someone could even conceive of as being common uh, to the point where it's um, the majority or near majority of, of uh, Jewish marriages uh, today. Uh, but it was a, you know, the emancipation is where we can find that trend starting. Uh, and as a result, the reform movement, you know, they didn't just create this for no reason in 83, they responded to these trends um, and did so in a religious way. So we'll look at that next time. Uh, if anyone has any thoughts, comments, or questions, if you want to throw them in the chat. Yes, you got so it. So if, if it follows the maternal line, you know, so mm -hmm. religion. Why then the paternal name, you know, the father's name and not the mother's name? <laughs> Great example. So for those that, I don't know if everyone could hear, but um, so if Judaism is matrilineal, then why is the Hebrew name? Why is it, why am I Yosef ben Shaul in my case, my father, um, and not Yosef ben Chava, my mother? Uh, and in the reform movement, we the reform movement uses both. So I'm Shaul or Yosef ben Shaul the Chava. Uh, but traditionally, yeah, if you go to an Orthodox synagogue, uh, then you're just son of uh, father. Um, that's interesting. My speculate, my guess is because the priesthood was uh, went through the male. Hmm? Male dominated or? Yeah, or you trace the lineage of the priesthood through the male. So, and I guess the tribe as well. Uh, furthermore, goes through the male. So like you're a Cohen because your father is a Cohen, right. for example. It doesn't matter if your mother's a Cohen. Um, so that, that's my guess it's related to that, but I don't know totally the history of how we got to the, the naming convention of, you know, Hebrew name being so-and-so son of. But they put so much importance mm -hmm. on the mother's lineage yeah. with regard to religion. It's drilled into you that because the mother is is passing it down, mm -hmm. and, um, I'm seeing it totally different now. Yeah, and, then, and there are more opportunities there. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Thank you. Great question. Uh, 